There he is. Man, that is like in small print. That's a big old face. That is a big face <laughs> and a little print. I mean, Nick's an interesting guy. You can see here's what he's done. He's very involved in Dallas. Atmos Energy is who he works for. It's natural gas stuff, right? Y'all sell a lot of natural gas. They always have some interesting problems. Good public relations <laughs> stuff going on. It's a good opportunity for you. Yeah, so he's their spokesman, right? Or is that right? Something along those lines. Something along those lines. So you, you get to talk to the CEO every day? Yeah, I've been there. <laughs> Those are not pleasant. <laughs> all right, here's Nick Pitts. At the end now, you can dismiss us in prayer. Okay. But don't go straight to the prayer. Okay, deal. Okay, all right. Okay, well, good deal. Well, so good to be back with you all. I feel like we've been through so many seasons together. I was single for a time, and then um, you saw me when I got married, and now I report to you a new season. Um, the little Dottie would have been here today, had a little child. My wife had a child uh, about four and a half months ago. So Dorothy Alice Pitts made her way into the world on April 1st, 2023. And I'll tell you, I wish she could have been here with you all, but because I didn't have a baby beside me, I slept like a baby last night. And so it was a, a delightful time. But it is, it's kind of surreal, this whole idea of, of of becoming a dad I take her on little walks and so you see like how squirmy she is she loves her toes she loves to eat her toes or attempt to eat her toes I'm looking at her little hands and she's got this strong grip and these long fingers and I'm thinking to myself with those fingers she's going to be the next pianist she might be the next Elton John she's she's going to take after me because um essentially I, I was a, a piano protege uh, growing up I can play Yankee Doodle Dandy uh, Desperado, Battle Hymn of the Republic. Um, so for your next party, um, remember me um, with my uh, piano skills. But nevertheless, I was, it got me thinking about all my piano playing days and then how young is too young to start piano. And interestingly enough, uh, piano playing lessons is down about 33% over the past four years. Piano sales have dropped 60% since 2004. And I just think that's such a missed, it's such a missed thing because I learned so much playing piano. My dad was so insistent on me taking lessons as a kid. Um, and so I, I would practice and practice and practice. And there were also times when I really didn't want to practice whatsoever. And so my dad would entice me. Uh, my dad was in banking and then in politics for a time, et cetera, et cetera. But he also uh, played backup piano for our church. And so um, he, would play, he would play songs for me that he wouldn't play at church to try to entice me to continue to practice. Songs such as Ice Ice Baby um, and uh, Elton John <laughs> and ACDC. He was trying to entice me that one day, if you continue to practice, you can play these songs and maybe you can play a hymn for your mother because she'd really want you to play a hymn. Um, and so I remember I would practice and I practiced and I practiced until eventually there came the time that my, uh, that my school was putting on a performance, a little recital. Essentially, it was like a talent show. And since I lack pretty much talent when it comes to sports and other activities, I knew how to play the piano. So I got a chance to play the piano during our school talent show in elementary school. 
And so I, I remember it just like it was yesterday. Northeast Elementary School, Cookville, Tennessee. There's, we're in the gymnasium, and so it's a perfect acoustical set uh, for a piano to be placed at the very long end. And so there's, uh, there's individuals that are juggling, there's individuals that are singing, and then it comes time for me to channel my inner Bach and play a little bit of Bach on the piano. And so I make my way, my awkward way, uh, across the gymnasium floor, and I get to the piano, like I've done countless times because my dad has helped me all these different times, playing Ice Ice Baby, etc. And now I've got to channel Bach. And so I sit down, and as soon as I sit down, I get to this moment where I realize I have completely forgotten the first note. <laughs> I don't know how to start this thing. I've played it time and time again, but I don't even remember how to start this. And then, as I'm sitting there, staring there, wondering, is it, is it illegal for me maybe to pull the fire alarm? Is it inappropriate for me to maybe walk away? Is there sheet music that I can somehow get from underneath this table? What am I thinking? All of a sudden, I see my dad standing halfway across the gym, and my dad is saying, gee, Gee, he's trying to remind me of the first note to help me in that time of need. And I don't know about you all, but I don't know if you know someone or if you happen to be that someone that's frozen at a piano, wondering what in the world am I supposed to do next? And you need a dad a heavenly father that's across the gym that's yelling, G, G. Today, I, I want us to look a little bit into Luke 24 and see this picture of this individual that is sitting at a piano that needs a reminder of who God is and a reminder that God is for them, not against them, and he's shouting, G, G. So in Luke 24, to set the scene, we, we're at the end. Christ has been crucified. It's been, three, it's been three days, and we've already heard the first reports coming out from Mary um, uh, that Jesus has been raised from the dead. But, you know, some were individuals that didn't really take this to heart. They didn't believe this to be true. And so in Luke 24, beginning in verse 13, we see this picture of these two individuals that are walking their way on the way to Emmaus. They're leaving Jerusalem. They're making a seven-mile walk. Um, they're making this seven-mile walk back, and they're just really discouraged, to say the very least. They're dour. Why? Because everything that they've known to be true is no longer true, they think. These are individuals that have no understanding. They've lost all hope. And they're wondering, going back to the place that they thought they had left for good, because the person that they had been following for three years has now was crucified, and their hopes and their dreams were dashed. They were at the piano, not knowing the note to play. And so they're making their way back on this walk, and, and they're talking, and they're, they're, there's a hopeless bleaknessness to them. And then there's an unrecognizable figure to them, but to us, we know that person is Jesus that approaches them on the road. And he asks them a question. He asks them, what are you talking about? What are these things you're referring to? Now, this would be something similar to what's going on. 
I've been living underneath a rock. I'm not aware of what's going on. But he asked this question to try to stir this conversation. And it always reminds me of what my grandma would tell me. Whoever asks the questions in the conversation often holds the power, right? Uh, that questions have the ability to direct the conversation, but they also have the opportunity to open up preconceived notions. You see, there's an interesting research study that was produced by Jean Twenge out of San Diego State University, and what she found is that today, that individuals are, are across a wide swath of categories not participating in the practices of the faith. So they're reading their Bible less, they're going to church less, they're giving to churches less, there's less of a desire to pray, there's less prayer that's happening. Across a wide variety of categories, everything is going down. But there's one category that things were going up. You know what that was? Belief that they were going to heaven. Isn't that fascinating? Now, we know the practices of the faith don't earn us a medicine to heaven. But what she concluded was that these individuals were spending their entire lives running away from God, yet they wanted to spend eternity with God. What was, the, her, what was one of her discussion points that she made? It's this concept called cognitive dissonance. When someone thinks they have all the answers, you can't give them a better answer. When someone thinks they have all the answers, you've got to create cognitive dissonance. What creates cognitive dissonance? Asking questions. When somebody thinks they know what they're talking about, it's asking questions to help them better understand that perhaps, maybe, they don't know what they're talking about. What we see in the beginning of Luke 24, 13 through 17 is this picture of individuals thinking all the answers are dour, there is no hope, I am stuck. And what does Jesus do? He creates cognitive dissonance. What are you referring to? You see, when you're down and out, there's three psychological, con sociological concepts that often define us. One, it's the idea of confirmation bias, right? Confirmation bias is anything, any other counteracting points will not change my mind due to my confirmation of what I already believe. Do you want to talk bad about my mom, Michelle Pitts? Do you want to bring evidence about uh, some, my mom isn't who she says she is? I'm not listening. <laughs> it's going in one ear and out the other, right? Because I've got a confirmation bias that my mom has hung the moon. She is the most compassionate, independent, fierce woman and businesswoman I've ever met in my life. A picture of God making someone and providing them a path to live out the fullness of their skill sets for the benefit of the world and for the joy of her soul. She's hung the moon. I got a confirmation bias, and there is no other counteracting facts that are, going to, that are going to change that. Not only is it confirmation bias that when we think everything's hopeless, when we think everything's bleak, I'm confirmed that nothing's going to change, but there's also the second psychological concept known as selective exposure. Selective exposure is I'm only listening to those things that are going to confirm what I believe, right? I'm not looking to change my mind. I'm looking to further strengthen my mind. So for these two disciples, they're confirmed that all hope is lost. They're only listening to things that are going to further convince them that the hope is lost and they need to move on. And then the third is they're going to exercise psychological rigidity. 
That's the idea of holding strong and being dour. But, thankfully, the walk continues. The walk continues in verse 17. What we see is this picture of individuals that Jesus asked them, asked them a question, what are you saying about these things? And then the second piece is they begin to recount the things that have happened. If you read in verses 17 through 21, these individuals start telling them that, that this person, the Christ, that they had been following for years, that he had been, that he had been crucified by the Romans, he had been, and now all hope is lost and we're going back. You see, what Jesus does in the second point is huge. Not only is he going to ask the question, but now he's going to listen. You know what's fascinating in today's world? We are in desperate need of listeners because there is a number of people that don't have anyone listening to them. You know, there's a new study by Cigna that indicates that in the 1990s, 3% of Americans said that they had a friend. That number has jumped fourfold to today to 12%. We've moved in a span of two decades, individual, 3% of individuals saying they have a friend to now no friend to 12% of individuals say, saying they have no friend. Individuals that would classify as loneliness, and loneliness, um, we know from a Harvard study that's indicated if you say that you're lonely, it's like smoking 15 cigarettes a day. Loneliness, 40% of Americans would say that they're lonely. They have, and by classified as lonely, it's when something significant happens to you, you have no one you can turn to to confide in. We've got individuals that not, aren't in desperate need of advice. They're in desperate need of a listening ear. But here's the thing that really kicked me, y'all. Kate Murphy uh, is a New York Times writer. She wrote this book called Why We Aren't Listening. And you know who she says are individuals that are least likely to listen to you? It's the person that's closest to you. You know why? You know why the person that's least likely to listen is because it's the person that's closest to you? Because they already assume they know what you're going to say. The person that we're closest to is the person we least listen to because we already assume we know. What Jesus demonstrates, one, is the power of a question. Asking questions to stir that cognitive dissonance. Two, the power of listening, of being that, per being that friend that is going to listen. And then three, being pre prepared to respond when given the opportunity. You see, they make their way out. Jesus asks the question. He listens to them. And then what does he do? When given the chance to respond, it says in verse 21 through 27, he begins to explain to them all the things that were supposed to happen to him during this time. That he, it says in the scriptures that he went through the law and the prophets, which is fascinating because Jesus is never mentioned in the law and the prophets. Why would, why would the writer Luke say these things about Jesus being in the law and the prophets? Well, what he's pointing to, what Jesus is pointing to, is what he's already said in Matthew 5, 17, when he says, I didn't come to abolish the law, I came to fulfill it. When these Pharisees and scribes, which were the nerds of the day, when the Pharisees and scribes were, were searching, trying to find eternal life, Jesus tells them in John 5 that you search these scriptures so, so that you can inherit eternal life, but I tell you, they testify about me. That 
what Jesus does in this moment is he provides them what I would call the ultimate spoiler. Confession. I don't like it when my little brother or any of my friends spoil movies. I am not only hate it when people spoil movies for me, but I hate it when somebody spoils a game for me because I will often, sports is like the live venue. It's the last thing we can actually watch live that we have to endure through these things called commercials. Do you all know what commercials are? Apparently they still happen. But, but, so I like to watch games a little bit delayed, especially regular season when the Titans, especially, because you know, my, heart, my heart's still in Tennessee. Thank you for the Titans, by the way. You're welcome for Davy Crockett. Um, uh, so, um, and so I still like to just zoom through these commercials. But I hate it when I'll get on Twitter. I hate it when I'll see a text message that'll spoil it. I don't know if anybody re anybody's read Harry Potter. Anybody read Harry Potter? Well, I, I just want you to know, spoiler alert, okay? Dumbledore dies in, in Harry Potter. Somebody spoiled that for me. And I still haven't forgiven them. Pray for me. It's been 10 plus years. I still haven't forgiven them for telling me that, 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 that uh, Dumbledore died. And, but you know what? what, what what's research has been found out of UC, uh, UC Davis. They found that spoiling a movie or spoiling the ending doesn't ruin it, but actually increases enjoyment of it. What they found is that when you know the end, you're better able to understand the details leading up to it. When you're frightened in suspense, you're not able to fully comprehend everything that's happening. So spoiling the movie, spoiling the ending, actually creates a greater enjoyment during the movie, during the show. It's fascinating. If we know the end, if we know how it's going to end, we'll better enjoy the ride. What does Jesus do in this moment? He begins to spoil the ending for them. I've always known that I'm going to come back. I've always known that I'm going to prepare a place for you. That I started the good work in you and I'm going to see it to completion. That I am for you and not against you and nothing against you shall prosper because you are mine. When you know the end of the story, it takes away the suspense in the middle of it. If you're at the piano right now wondering, what am I going to do? Please know that you have a God that it says, I'm going to carry you through it regardless of whatever you do. I have plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Jesus is the ultimate spoiler of the movie. He tells you how it's going to end. G.K. Chesterton has this phrase uh, that I absolutely love and my wife now hates because I use it all the time. And it says that an inconvenience is only a, an adventure wrongly perceived. Understanding that things happen. We find ourselves at pianos not knowing that G is the first note, but you know, we've got, a, we've got a father in heaven who's at the other end of the gymnasium saying G, G. But that's not where our story ends. What I love is that 
Jesus is like the ultimate storyteller, you know? And so he gets through this story, and then these guys are like, oh, we've got to have him back. we got to hear more. And so it's getting to be the end of the day, and this road that they had been walking on is very dangerous in nature. And so they decide, you know what, let's go ahead and let's get, let's get inside because that's where it's safe. And then they broke the bread together, and they, and they shared a meal together. And then Jesus immediately disappeared in the breaking of the bread. And then they, they turned to one another because Jesus is like apparently David Blaine that just disappears. And they say, were our hearts not warmed while he was explaining the scriptures to us? Jesus is the ultimate storyteller. Why? It's, it's a reminder of this quote from N.T. Wright. And N.T. Wright says that, uh, he says that you can tell someone to do something and you'll change their day. You can tell someone a story and you'll change their life. Jesus was telling them a story. They just happened to be on the road. But he's also telling them a bigger story about a God that loved them so much that he was willing to send his only begotten son into this world that he who knew no sin lived the absolute perfect life to fulfill all 600 plus commands in the Old Testament was willing to lay down his life so that those of us with sin, if we place our faith in him, can recognize that though we find ourselves at pianos and we don't remember the first note, we can stay true and hold fast the reality that we have a heavenly father that's not leaving us that's going to see this story to completion for the glory of his name, for the joy of our soul, and for the good of this world. I don't know if you're at the piano today. I don't know if you know somebody that's at that piano that doesn't know the next note to play. But here's what I do know. Our Father is good. He's present. He's there. And he wants to help. G. Let's pray. God, I love you, and I thank you so much for this time that you've given us and for the opportunity just to gather together. Um, and so I just ask that you would bless us, Father. Um, we are all know somebody at the piano, or we ourselves might be at a piano moment in our life, and we, you know, we need to know the first note. We need to get, know what to do next. Or we just need to know that you're there. And so, Father, just in your graciousness, I ask that you would just help us to know. Gee, I love you, God. It's in your name of prayer. Amen.